Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. And now back to Lifeline. They're back to Time 507 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Three lines open if you want to join our conversation as we are talking about how to make sense of the coronavirus and what kind of attitudes and and responses we should yield to it over against a, a larger world view biblically in terms of the sealed judgments that are described in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, before we go to the phone lines again, you read in Revelation chapter 6 a second horse that is revealed as the decretive expression of God's declared word uh, bearing uh, the uh, insignia of red. The second seal was broken in Revelation chapter uh, 6, and the uh, red horse goes forth, as it says, making war, taking peace from the earth is the way that the terminology uses it. And what I've stated is that what you don't have going on, in my opinion, is that you have a period of peace in the preaching of the gospel. And then you have a period of war uh, uh, in the world after the gospel. No, you have a period of peace uh, only in the preaching of the gospel in the sense that the preaching of the gospel brings about peace to those who trust Christ. But the preaching of the gospel has always taken place in the context of the red horse's presence. That is to say that the red horse rides simultaneously with the white horse and that they are not um, operating in parallel worlds. They're operating in the same world. And when we work our way through the sealed judgments in Revelation chapter six through eight, we will discover that part and parcel of the uh, response of the wrath of the lamb will be a direct consequence of rejecting that gospel that's coming forth on that white horse. Red horse is a uh, means of distraction by the enemy, creating wars and and rumors of wars and battles on the earth because of the uh, objective of uh, claiming and owning this world by principalities and powers that are malevolent and working contrary to the reality of the true and the living God and carnal men who don't operate out of the priority of the kingdom of God would certainly want to completely annihilate any rule of Christ from the world. And the way he does that is by persecuting the church. So when you read Matthew 24 and then you read Revelation 6 through 8, what you see is a historic long, a New Testament long, an eschaton long, long period of uh, cyclical uh, ridings, if you will, of both the white horse and the red horse. And then we'll talk here in a little bit about the uh, speckled horse, um, the one that holds the scales, because they're all operating simultaneously. And when he opened the seal, the second seal, I heard the second living creature uh, make these words, according to verse four, and went forth another horse, bright red, and the one sitting on it without description was granted. This is called a divine passive power from God to take peace from the earth and that uh, that uh, that men would slay one another and that a great sword that is the Makira sword and really that 
that sort is generally referring to political wars and and judgments and executions of men and women as a consequence of uh, a political rivalry. That imagery is very clear and it corresponds, does it not, very neatly with Revelation, uh, with Matthew chapter 24, Mark 13, Luke 17 through 19 as well. We live in that time. Um, if you did live through World War One, Two, or the Vietnam War or the Cold War, as did I, you would know the kind of distracting nature in which that war uh, bore down on our conscience. And it really made us worry about our very existence every day. And yet, you know what? People had to go to work. People had to do what Illuro is saying. You got to pay the bills. You got to do those wise and practical things that make for life because until you are, you know, expired or die as a consequence of some kind of event, uh, you know, God forbid, uh, you have to you have to try to maintain and preserve a form of normalcy, period. You can't lose your mind. Illuro is talking about folks going out, buying up a bunch of toilet tissue and everything else. Well, why just toilet tissue? <laughs> I heard that the other day. I don't know, maybe in prayer service or something. I went to the market and couldn't hardly find any toilet tissue. Here we go. Now we're rushing out to buy tons of toilet tissue. All right. You can buy as much toilet tissue as you want to. You sure can. Um, but we do have to maintain a balance, don't we? The Lord has not given us the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And we must operate within the framework of that holy trinity. Love, power, and a sound mind. Let me go to line number one, if you will. Talk to my brother Dan, see what he's up to. Dan, are you there? I have many reactions, and I'm having to kind of triage it because my reactions are nuanced. So, Oh, a triage of nuances. All right, let's talk so about it. I will it. Put, put this one out there. I know a man who is on the Grand Princess. I just found out last night, but he had been on there. And he states that he's had the opportunity to pray, and uh, he's crossed paths with people, even though he is locked down in his cabin. But he, uh, people encounter him, and he was the designated babysitter for his uh, daughter-in-law. And he, um, he's had the chance to pray with people, give them explanations, and interact, even though... You know, they're coming to his cabin and saying hi and maybe dropping off his food. And he's not out and about, but um, they found out that 21 people on the ship were uh, ill or have the uh, contagion. But I actually think that maybe in two years we're going to be wondering why we were making such a big deal about this. I agree. I agree. Um, Expand. Well, uh, like you said about the toilet paper, now people think it's a problem with getting the supply chain from China. Right. Because of where a lot of it's manufactured, so they're afraid they're going to have their supply cut off. Right. Would that be the end of the world, sir? (laughs) That's so irrational. Uh, I mean, it's almost humorous, but it's so rational relative to uh, the the multitude of alternatives to toilet paper. I mean, what I what I love about the irony of it, you know, they're concerned about wiping their butt. Uh, Okay, okay, the animals aren't, you know. Just a lot of God's creatures are just not worried about toilet paper. But here we go. I can tell you, too, and you already know this, there are many third world countries just all around the world. I've been there, and they are not 
at all behoven to uh, toilet tissue as a absolute necessity of comfort and uh, and maintenance of life. Not for one bit, but but, but Americans well, you know are amazing. That- you could get banana leaves. You could. What's the name of that <laughs> stuff that grows down among the redwoods down there in uh, San Jose and stuff? Uh, uh, le- leaves of all sorts. The palm tree leaves. There are. There are. Look. There are all kind of leaves. And then we've got tons of other synthetics around. Think about that bag of clothes that you got in the garage that you could just easily cut up into, you know, squares and just, you know, systematically dispense of. Uh, you're going to have to put it in a bag because you can't be running it down the toilet. But, uh, you know, I think we could get by, Dan. I think we could get by. Uh, so what's this panic about? You know, in uh mm-hmm. I'm staying home. I'm not going and inter- interacting because I have to be here with my mother. So I'm not ar- out and around, but we can pray for these people. And uh, mm-hmm. it's not the worst pestilence that's ever struck us yet. Now, you said like it could mutate. We don't know. But why are we assuming the worst right now? Because we've been preconditioned uh, for it. And this is a great. Well, think about it. You and I are believers, and therefore we read our Bibles with enough uh, frequency to know this, that God knows us well, doesn't he? He knows as well. Would you agree, Dan? God knows. That's something else I want to talk to you about in a minute. But okay, back up. Back up. Stay more with than me. What people think he does. Yes, they back up. God knows us well enough to, whenever God breaks into our communities, no matter where we are within the biblical landscape, what is the one thing God has to tell us to do in order to calm down and listen to him? Fear not. Don't fear. And uh, Don't fear. I heard Phil Howard talking the other day, and he he was mentioning... It predominates guilt in the in the West mm-hmm. and uh, fear in uh, Africa and shame in Asia. That is not to say that you those don't concepts have don't the, overlap. They do overlap. Yeah. I agree with you. But but uh, if a lot of people in the West are dealing with guilt, one of the things that I was listening to you say last week was really making me sit down and think, because I asked myself if I could picture the father getting down on one knee and yelling at somebody, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. This is not something that the Heavenly Father would ever say, because he does know what to do. But the child would then, their eyes would bug out. Right. Because I was listening to another pastor speak, and I got to asking myself, since he already knows what to do, the closest we can press is... Hosea, when he said, how shall I give up Ephraim? Right. He's not saying, I don't know what to do, because he does know. He's, he's expressing, I wish that you wouldn't press me so hard to give me only two options, either put you in captivity or give you redemption, because you're pressing me too hard by your disobedience. Yep. So, uh, and we can't really read into that verse that he doesn't know what to do. Not at all. What what we always have to do with anthropomorphisms, and you know that's an anthropomorphism. It's also an anthropopathism. And when we deal with anthropomorphisms, and, you know, uh, I'm glad you're talking about the East-West, West, uh, you know, paradigm, because in, in, in the West, if, if as uh, Dr. Howard is, is, is correct, we are dominated by guilt. 
um, it, that guilt is a consequence of us having superfluously uh, enjoyed uh, benefits given to us by God, both spiritually and practically, uh, beyond such measures that we are we're culpable as a society. There's no doubt about that. And 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 once one is dominated by levels of guilt uh, that are um, reach critical mass, what we start doing is engaging in irrational behavior. Irrational behavior will proceed from guilt. There's no, 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 no doubt, no doubt about that. Getting back to a wonderful observation that you're making about the genre of scripture, we have to be clear about God's immutable and changeable attributes, and they can never be compromised by his communicable attributes that are framed within a kind of anthropomorphism that allows us to understand God on a pathological level, on an emotional level. Of course, course he knows but he will engage us <clears throat> and he is and particularly Israel which was uniquely his people uh, at that time uh, on a father or paternal level with the kind of emotional discharge that would put an emphasis on Israel's obligation to act right but demonstrably prove that they are so desperately sinful <clears throat> that they won't act right. And so the theology that we derive out of that is this, that God is just when he punishes us for our sins because he has went beyond any kind of necessary parameters to show us how how desperately sinful we are in neglecting his overtures of mercy in our life, only leaving him with the just a result of exercising a justice necessary for him to reclaim his glory, even against his own sons. And, and that's something that the totality of humanity is going to discover once we reach judgment day as well, that the nature of the final judgment will never be one where humanity will be able to collectively stand before God and say that you were not merciful. You were not just, you were not kind or long suffering. They will have to admit that there was an uh, indiscriminate amount of mercy and judgment exercised by a passionate heavenly father upon a uh, a, a group of rebel children who were desperately headed uh, to calamity. That That's the way we're supposed to derive that. By the way, the book of Hosea, man, is a killer book. I mean, if you really want to work through anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms in terms of God's overture or proclamation, that that's the book. It'll 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 humble you. It'll show you how 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 God extends mercy beyond our right, and it'll show us how how desperately wicked we are uh, beyond our repair. Listen, I got to take a break. Uh, if you want to hold on, you got some other thoughts. We can chat when I come back. I'm gonna pay some bills. You hold on, Dan, and we'll continue this this dialogue on the other side of the break. There are three lines open: one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, let's go back to line one and talk with Dan. Dan, are you there? Yeah, well, you know, donate to um, Living Water or Cross International or Grace Bible Church or something mm -hmm. with the intention of letting God use that to open people's mind to the gospel, to help the poor, because they can do a lot with a small amount of money. 
I agree. I, I really do. Not to uh, take any plugs for us at Grace, but one of the things that we do do is like all those institutions that you're talking about, we we already support. Um, just to me, it seems like that's you know, and it doesn't take a lot of money. When when you hear these ministries that are. Um, actually doing effective work of, of compassion for people in, in different uh, conditions and, and, and straits. And you think about all they're asking for, let's say Cross International, um, and they'll be asking for $30 to provide a, a child a meal for a month um, or, or $60 for three months or some some outrageously low price to take care of a child for, you know, a month. We take care of hundreds of kids for years that's what we, that's you know because we have the the we have the resources to do it take care of hundreds of kids for years for years and and you know this that element is just about uh being compassionate and using the resources that we have and hope that those institutions that are actually doing that pragmatic work are using it as a vehicle for the gospel we want the gospel to reach uh people in all uh, all um, conditions of, of life and particularly the poor, the gospel is designed to be given to the poor. And, you know, if I were in that state or you were in that state where someone was feeding me a bowl of soup and uh, putting just mere clothing on my back or giving me and my comrades or my fellow tribesmen uh, a well of water or something of that menial task that we don't ever really even consider as a probability for us. Um, I would be open to uh, considering the the source of their altruism and the source of their benevolence. And, and if they could point me to the true and the living God as the source behind uh, their actions, and that, that might very well be uh, a compelling way by which uh, we come to faith in Christ and we actually believe it is. And that's why we do it as, as a body of believers and as local churches. If that's it, brother, go on. Maybe people don't see the connection, but that's an excellent response to COVID-19 because it's directly related probably to sanitation, to food. You know, if a poor person can't afford a good steak or whatever they need, you know, uh, protein, put them in school, put them in school, then let them go to get some education or I agree. I mean, I totally agree. I mean, I could I could turn this for the next 30 minutes into why we would want human beings to be healthy in order that they would be in a position to receive the gospel at maximum capacity. That, I mean, that would just be that would only be rational. It would only be right. I mean, you know, this is why many of our ministries, uh, mine included, reach into several uh, several regions of the world, including California, uh, and, and touch communities that are in ex- precisely those conditions. We would want them to have healthy protein in their diet, healthy fruits and vegetables and, and carbs and all of that in order to operate at maximum capacity so that when they are secure in their health, they can be secure in their head. And if they're secure in their head, then we can secure them in their heart with the gospel through the preaching of the gospel and thus the church has been a part of that from the beginning of time. Listen, brother, thank you for the call. I'm going to go to line number two and talk with Karen. Uh, Karen, on line number two. Karen, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi, Pastor Jesse. Great. What's your thoughts, comment, or observation on our topic or other? I, I'm a lot more concerned about the, the virus than you or Dan. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking that it's a lot more serious, and this is why. I'm not anxious or worried. Mm-hmm. 
I'm like faith and confidence is in is in God, and I'm anchored there. Sure. I want to be like Spurgeon, who ministered to people on the cholera outbreak. He, he sure he did. Afraid. He sure yeah, did. Yeah, that was very inspiring. That blog on, and that's exactly what I want to be. But my concern is this: is that it's going to overwhelm the the the, the public health system, and that's where the problem is going to be. It's not going to be. You know, the virus itself is just a sheer overload. We can't handle it in the ICU. You know, the ICUs are not, you know, they're already, many of the big city hospitals transfer their patients. Right. You know, they get overwhelmed even of bad flu, you know. And this is, some of these people, there's two strains. There's a severely lethal one, the, the one that has like more like the, the SARS. Right. And that's what, that's, and it's requiring people to be on ventilators for weeks. Right. Right. I think it's going to be like healthcare rationing, and I think people are going to be dying just from accidents because they can't get into hospitals. I mean, that's that's the situation. It's going to be very, I think personally, it's going to be very dire. And what's compelling? My- what's compelling you? What's compelling you to those thoughts? Because all you're doing right now, you're making assertions. What's compelling you to that? Um, what evidence? You have, you, yeah, you have to have evidence for for any kind okay, of compelling I, thought. I, I've been reading a lot of uh, like the. If, Oh, gosh, the epidemiologist, like Eric Feigl. Epidemiologist. Epidemiologist, yeah, okay. The disease specialist, the public yeah. health, they have Twitter accounts. I've been reading various uh, Twitters that deal, that are, you know, Johns Hopkins, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're, and no, they're but informing. They're the same thing. That we have to flatten the curve. We have to be prepared. We have to be. You know, and I just feel like a lot of us aren't. A lot of us are just burying our heads in the sand and not really paying attention and just, you know, oh, it's just a flu and and even, you know, so that's it. But, I, you know, that it's beside the point. It really no, isn't. it's not. No, it's not. I'm going to flesh you out for a minute now that you are okay, braver. You now that you are but braver. I, mean, I want to just say one thing here. Also, I didn't actually just only want to talk about that. I wanted to talk about Revelation, right. too, because our pastor is talking, teaching on it, and I'm chafing under it. Actually, okay, that's that's unfortunate. So wanted, but that's mainly what I wanted to talk about. Sure, we can. To, let me let me just make one observation about where you that. are. Okay, but if you want to push back on me, that's fine too. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I'll do a couple things. One is, and, and okay. fundamentally, what I wanted to say because you put out information and data that I know exists in terms of uh, of the the um, the historic uh, precedent that we've already uh, made and proven that we aren't as well equipped as we ought to be for calamity and difficulty. But this is true, Karen, on so many levels and so many fields and so many areas in which calamities have occurred and Americans have been behind the gun. One of the uh, one of the very clear and evidential realities for me about uh, American existence is that we have a facade of being um, a first rate nation when, in fact, we are a second tier nation in terms of the quality of our goods and uh, our roads and our buildings and our resources. And we are quickly collapsing into a third world country uh, in many of in many of our states around the nation. I get that. But it doesn't it doesn't actually create in many in me any kind of anxiety. I I see the 
the folly. I see the folly of our government that tries to continue uh-huh. to make a wedge between its own prominence and the God who has resourced it. I see that. And I understand yeah. the sober response of the epidemiologists and the uh, first responders and their concern about uh, an outbreak that we can't handle. I got that. I, I certainly got that. But the, 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 the conversation and the analysis and the facts about our unpreparedness for them does not uh, affirm any uh, predetermined uh, escalation of an outbreak of the coronavirus uh, whatsoever. I'm listening to the medical uh, reports as well, and they don't have that as a trajectory as of yet because they just don't have enough information for that to occur. I also have this uh, second caveat in my own thinking because I try to intentionally be an optimist uh, uh, on the basis of realism is that uh, should we reach that place where the virus has mutated in a way that it has become much more impactful uh, fatally, um, that, that, that we would then be inclined to uh, find ways to, to function and deal with it, to, to cap it and to handle it, um, uh, notwithstanding the losses that will come, notwithstanding the pain that we will suffer, notwithstanding the trouble that we would um, uh, incur as a, a consequence of the disease and a consequence of our present lack of uh, preparedness. I don't see any way of us preparing in advance because our predisposition predisposition as a nation is to be um, careless. That's how we are as a nation. We're careless around the important matters. And I, I understand your concern about that. But as Christians, God is on the throne and you and I are not to be careless about the matters, and neither are we to be careful about the matter, but prayerful about the matter and do as much as we possibly can to prepare for it uh, without it distracting us from our constant gaze upon Jesus Christ. Now, tell me uh, before we go to break in the next three or four minutes, what are you chafing under in the book of Revelation that's being taught by your pastor? Well, I'm going to try to be careful as I can. That's right. Because um, I really respect this man. He Absolutely. preaches the gospel. He, he, it's a biblical-based church. But it, I, I, and I go there because the people there are very dear to me, um, dear people. They, well, that's four really, reasons to stay at a yeah. church like that. <laughs> so, yes, I love it. But it, they preach—it's one of—I'll just tell you, you would probably know this kind of church. It, it preaches the rapture of the of church. Of course, premillennial dispensational but, theology. Yes, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So I don't agree with it. And right. I'm listening to, like, we just did the Revelation 6 and opening of the seals, but he thinks we're out of the picture, and it lends a certain, I don't know, I can't, there was even joviality. I mean, like, we're of out of here. It does, of course. It, I, I of can't course. really explain it, but it was like, he was literally making jokes mm-hmm. uh, about wild animals tearing people apart and things like that. I was like, oh my, I wanted to walk out. Honestly, I did. Right, right. <laughs> I wanted to walk out. Right. I was, I was, I was restraining myself. Right. So it's really hard for me. I'm mm-hmm. chafing. I literally am chafing. Now you're, I don't believe now, in the rapture. I, mm-hmm. I don't see it in the scriptures. It's mm-hmm. Jesus, not. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know how to, 
how to handle them. I don't know how to get under this anymore. I guess that's what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. that's why I listen to your sermons all the time. And mm-hmm. Well, that's part of the problem, too, <laughs> listening to my teaching. But I'll, I'll start no, this way. because I agree with your teaching. Right. You're, well, and that, you know reformed. what? That's all, that's right. all. That's all. That, that is completely all right. Um, one of the things that I'm getting ready to do in this series in the book of Revelation, I wish your pastor would take the time to listen to the series I'm doing on Sunday mornings because that's when I'm doing it. And I'm doing an overview and it's going to take about a month to do an overview overview, and then I'm going through selected uh, books in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the seven churches. I'm going to deal with that. I'm going to deal Uh with the seven seals because I'm going to lay them out exegetically, not eisegetically. I'm going to deal with the mark of the beast in Revelation 12 and 13 over against Uh the mark of the believer in Revelation 14 and demonstrate the parody and the coherence of the symbolism there. And I'm going to actually be dealing with the uh, millennial concept or controversy that really is chiliastic in Revelation 20, and then I'm going to finally deal with um, Revelation chapter 21 and 22 in terms of uh, the ideal state that we're all being brought into. After that, or somewhere along that series, I'm going to actually deal with the four views that are prominently historically laid out, the post-mill view, pre-mill view, all-mill view, and the preterite view, and try to show my own people um, where the weaknesses are in those systems and help them get a handle on you know, why there's such a a massive sort of uh, emphasis and prominence on a premillennial dispensational view. Um, And and if he listens, why is is it? Um, what do you think? Yeah, I, I can say this. I got one minute, one, about one minute with you. I can say that the premillennial dispensational uh, view is the Johnny Lung come lately view that has been uh, spawned over the last 150 years, starting in, in Europe um, uh, with, with William Darby and, and, uh, and, and Schofield. I know that, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and, 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 and if anyone were to just. Not the millennial view. We have what is called a historic millennial view, and, 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 and Brother Spurgeon was a millennialist in that sense. I am understanding of what is called a simplistic millennial view. That's, that's acceptable. That A millennial view was held by the patristic fathers in the early years of the church all the way up to the first millennium until the millennium came and then, you know, nothing happened. Yeah. Uh, but, but what you're dealing with today is really the fabrication of a marketed system of religious politics that has dominated our culture ever since we were operating out of a kind of triumphalism as uh, Mm -hmm. Western Christians uh, having conflated both politics and religion uh, and thinking that we were going to conquer the world within the framework of that sort of conquest mentality, that conquering mentality of American Christianity, which has proven itself to be a farce now over the last hundred years. Yeah. um, What we haven't repented of, particularly with my Southern Baptist brethren is a presumption of interpretation around the premillennial dispensational view. But what they don't do is they don't hold it up to the spectrum of light and demonstrate that there are other three other views that need to be uh, equally analyzed in light of their set of assumptions. Because if they were, they would have to demonstrate biblically, exegetically, that once we leave chapter three of the book of Revelation, the church is no more, no longer in the world. That's such a mm-hmm. ludicrous assertion. It is. Right. Because mm-hmm. by the time you get to chapter 12, I mean, if chapter 12 uh, is, is anything, it's asserting that the church is not only in the world, but the church is under tribulation. And we can see that in right. the seventh 
seals as well uh, that the church has been persecuted. So I'm going to lay out the folly of, you know, in heaven only. It's from heaven to earth that we get the vision that John gets when he says, and the door was opened in heaven and I was caught up. That John was caught up does not mean the church was caught up. Um, that That becomes the very era of hermeneutic that they say that we employ. It's called spiritualizing. And I'm going to demonstrate how ludicrous it is for them to take a literal position and say that Jesus is coming back on a horse, a horse in the 21st century. He coming back on a horse. Jesus coming back on a a white horse. And then a sword is coming out of his mouth. I mean, out of his mouth. Jesus is coming back on a white horse. The sword's coming out of his mouth and he's going to have a, a tattoo on his thigh saying the word of God. So this is where when you over literalize, you actually undermine the, the clarity of scripture and you have to now make jokes about the Bible. You have to make jokes because you aren't taking the genre of scripture seriously. Now, quite admittedly, if you take the genre of scripture seriously, my premillennial dispensationalist brethren, they're going to run into all kinds of walls. I mean, all kinds of walls. We, you, have to, you have to use spiritual symbolism even to make uh, Revelation 12, 1, the woman that's clothed in the sun, moon under her feet, 12 stars on her head. You got to make her national Israel. That's symbolism in itself. The Bible is filled with that, particularly in the genre of the book of Revelation. So their argument of a superior hermeneutic just collapses once you listen to them exegete the scripture. But you know what? There are brethren, and they had their day. Again, a hundred years ago in the Cold War, oh man, they were making tons of money because they saw the, you know, they saw Armageddon, Tim LaHaye, all those cats saw the kings of the of the East coming down from Russia and all that. It made a ton of money. It made people nationalistic too. It caused people to love America and want to be Christian. But once, you know, the Ten Common Market fell apart, the United Nations, all of that stuff fell apart, then they get very quiet about how they were nailing biblical verses to the newspaper and saying this is what the Bible is saying. We're quiet now. And the reason why is we have mixed the wool and the flax and the good seed and the bad seed just to become popular. So the Bible has to be interpreted coherently and consistently and radically Christocentrically. The sad thing about my premillennial dispensational brethren is Jesus gets lost in the whole of the rhetoric. He just gets played down so low and so insignificant uh, that for me it's a problem. Listen, thank you for the call. Um, Keep listening. Tell your pastor to listen and tell him if he wants to talk about it, he can call me on the Monday show. (laughs) Bless you. Okay. All right. I got to take a break. Way overdue. Pay some bills and maybe we'll chat toward the close of the program. There you go. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we're back. We've got about eight minutes, but if you wanted to try to chime in, I guess you could. one 888 The whole of our program is really centered around this present epic, this present event that's taking place with the coronavirus. I appreciate your um, observations, Karen, in terms of uh, uh, the concern of our government uh, in terms of its uh, preparedness to actually deal with a serious, serious um, uh, outbreak of any kind of a calamity or tragedy that would befall us or a crisis. Uh, 
Bible-believing Christians have to know that the Bible has so clearly laid out uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse uh, verse 5, woe unto the one that actually inclines himself or finds himself leaning into and trusting man or making um, flesh his arm. That is to say, ladies and gentlemen, as much as we would want to um, utilize and depend upon and, and uh, uh, be confident in our institutions— What the Bible says about all of us by nature is that we're liars. Do you know what that means? That means we will paint the picture about ourselves uh, and make us look better than we actually are. That means that uh, in, in institutional structures, it is real easy to make yourself look good by stacking the books and uh, doing the numbers in such a way that uh, we look like we're all right until the Loma Prieta hits us. Until a tsunami hits uh, Korea and and some of the dregs of it uh, it, makes its way to the shores of California. Until we are dealing with, uh, you know, fires up in, um, you know, Paradise and uh, Sonoma County areas where now our PG&E bills are out the roof. And also PG&E has now uh, filed for bankruptcy because we were operating out of a broken reed system. And on and on and on and on it could go in terms of... um, the reality that we lie about the state and condition of our our government. Well, that's what human beings do every day when they do not admit and acknowledge their need for a savior, that they ha- they don't have a remedy for sin, that we're broken uh, uh, in ways that are deeper and more painful and more toxic and more uh, more uh, concerning than we want to really admit. We we really love putting on makeup. We love stacking the books. That's what we do. That's what we do. And so the Bible says, no, don't collapse into that. Uh, Look in the mirror and uh, face yourself and uh, and recognize what you are. And uh, if you draw a right assessment by the grace of God, looking in, uh, in the mirror in the light of God's word, you'll recognize that you and I are by nature totally dependent, desperately wicked, uh, helplessly rebellious, in complete denial of our real spiritual condition. And that uh, only God can save us from us and from him, by the way. Uh, and he has uh, he's laid out that measure in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's one thing for our secular society to go around in a normalcy bias, fundamentally denying uh, this reality. I get that. And they know how to do it because they party, um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with enjoying life and partying. Uh, so long as you don't inebriate yourself or alter your mind or walk in levels of denial that causes you to deny your responsibilities in life. And and the ultimate one is that we'll face Almighty God one day. That is the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, uh, which is one of those epics that are laid out in the sequel of uh, what I call the proto eschaton of the book of revelation a series in first a first and last that you find in the seal judgments trumpet judgments and bold judgments that lead us up to that final a uh, great white throne judgment of which again you 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 got to listen to the language a great white throne uh white is a color coded term in the book of revelation that is consistent all the way back before the white horse of the of the uh, first seal of the seal judgments. It goes back to the white garments 
uh, and it goes further back to the white woolly hair of him who is the ancient of days, who is represented in the high priest of the church in Revelation chapter one and two. White represents the righteousness of Christ, of which whiteness every believer uh, has inherited by faith uh, through Jesus Christ so that we wear right white robes or at least we're given white robes as part of the fifth seal judgment. And we are told to rest until the rest of our brethren suffer in this world at the hands of the Antichrist, Antichrist Satan and the beast. Uh, and then Christ will come again in all white. That is a triumphant king, monarch, judge on horses, and we will come with him. What kind of horse are you going to be riding on? Well, I'm telling you, it's all a metaphor of coming in power and authority, authority to make war against those who have opposed God and to summarily uh, seat uh, Christ as king and Lord over the, the coming uh, kingdom of God that will exist and abide for all eternity. When you're going to read the book of Revelation, you've got to read it uh, in the literalism in which the genre mandates it. Christ made it clear that he's speaking in significations. And if you don't embrace those significations, you are going to make a monstrosity out of the book. He's standing in the middle of seven golden candlesticks. Our great king and priest, our Melchizedek, Jesus. Is he standing in the middle of a literal menorah or is that a symbolic menorah that points to the fullness and perfection of the church by the number seven? Come on now, let's get this language right if you're going to act, you know, actually call yourself a teacher of the Bible. I love John Calvin because you know what he did? He didn't even touch the book of Revelation, as brilliant as he was, and how helpful he was in his institutes and his commentaries in preparing us for the New Testament age. He says, I'm not ready to deal with all of that language there. He was prudent. He was prudent. And some of us are dealing with the book of Revelation like we've been sitting at God's elbow. Better be careful. That's a powerful book that blesses and it also curses. So until next time, keep your feet fully grounded in the promises of God, eyes fully fixed on the Savior by whom all those promises are yes and amen through his church, the body of Christ. Until next time, bye-bye. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.